think we should be canceled because to be honest with you, we all make mistakes. I don't think anybody should be canceled. We should be extending grace and mercy to everyone. People are so convinced they don't get both sides of the story. Now, do you think as a culture, we have forgotten how to disagree with one another? Yes, Absolutely. we have. Everybody's so involved in themselves. We silo ourselves. Oh, you're afraid you'll get hurt. Mm. Literally hurt. Well, good morning, church. It is uh, so good to be uh, with you here today to have a chance to study God's Word together. We welcome those uh, joining us on our iCampus and over the radio for this uh, particular service as well. You know, that uh, video... Uh, it's so interesting to me because we just went down, you know, one afternoon to downtown Melbourne. Presumably, uh, not all of the people that we videoed uh, there were followers of Christ. We don't know uh, each one's uh, spiritual condition, but uh, even those who uh, perhaps are not followers of Christ can still see uh, that we have a problem in our society when it comes to canceling one another over differing viewpoints. But before we jump in this morning, it may be good, since this is the first week in this teaching series, to just define what we mean by cancel culture. This definition comes from the Cambridge Dictionary. They say that cancel culture is a way of behaving in a society or a group, especially on social media, in which it is common to completely reject and stop supporting someone because what they have said or done offends you. And that definition is good insofar as it goes. I don't think that it quite goes far enough. I agree with author Joe Dallas, who wrote in his book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, that what that definition misses is the punitive nature of this cancel culture that we live in. Oftentimes, it isn't just that someone who disagrees with you stop supporting you. In our society today, Dallas says this, quote, the wrong words in public can get you fired or sued or worse. The wrong words in private can terminate a once solid relationship. He goes on to point out that in a sense, of course, that has always been the case, but quote, what's changed is what constitutes the wrong words. Historically, they have been obscenities, threats, or insults of the crudest sort. Today, they, the wrong words, include traditional beliefs about life, family, and country that until recently have been shared and repeated. I think that we all have a sense of what a lot of those traditional views are that can get you canceled in today's world by your employer by your friends, perhaps even by family members in some cases. They are traditional views about gender and sexuality and race and a host of other topics. Now, if all you ever say is God loves you, you probably will never get canceled. But if you dare to say what the Bible says about any of those sensitive areas, cancel culture may come knocking at your door or blocking your account or telling you to pack your things. 
They may be telling you that there is no room for a bigoted, homophobic, transphobic, fundamentalist person like you in this open, tolerant society. And in our upcoming weeks in this series, we're going to be talking about some of those very topics that our culture wants to cancel us over. We're going to be talking about our culture's desire to cancel God himself, our culture's desire to cancel the scripture, and our culture's desire to cancel God's design for the family. But today, in this opening message in this series, I just want us to think about cancel culture in general. We all know that we're living in the middle of a cancel culture. We're living in a society that has largely forgotten how to disagree. And so as we seek to follow Christ and live out our faith in this current cultural moment, how should we do that? How should we respond when cancel culture comes for us? Should we cave in on what the truth is? Should we be quiet and silent so that we don't draw any attention? Should we get mad and retaliate? Does God give us any help at all in his word about these matters? Well, of course he does. While the Bible does not contain the answer to every conceivable question that we might ask, God has given us in his word all things that pertain to life and godliness in this age and in every other. There's actually quite a few passages that we could turn to for help on this topic, but the Lord has led me this week to Romans chapter 12 as a key text for us to look at. So if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Romans 12, and we'll start reading in verse 9 together. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, we pray today and thank you for your word. We pray as you have called us to live in this world, but to not be of this world, that you would help us to know how to live for you in this age. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
as we think today about this question, how God has called us to live in the midst of this cancel culture. I want us to discover seven principles together in these verses, and here is the first one. As believers, we should expect <coughs> to be canceled because we live in the same world that canceled Christ. You see, in these verses that the Apostle Paul wrote to these Christians living in Rome, the assumption is that some trouble was going to come their way as a result of their decision to follow Christ. <clears throat> and you can see that in several verses. In this passage, in verse 14, we read, Bless those who persecute you. The implication there is that someone is going to persecute you, and you'll need to be able to bless them in return. In verse 17, we read, Repay no one evil for evil. Again, it's implied that someone is going to do an evil thing to you. In verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourself. The implication is there might be a temptation to avenge yourself because someone will do something wrong to you. Historically, of course, we know that persecution did come <coughs> in a major way to these Christians living in Rome in the years after Paul wrote this letter. This is the city where the emperor Nero blamed a fire in the city that many believed he set himself on the Christians who lived there, and that set off an intense period of persecution on these Christians. This is the same city, of course, where Paul himself, the author of this letter, would be executed, beheaded because of his testimony in Christ. And so for sure, for these Christians living in the first century, persecution just came with the territory of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that that has been the case for the majority of Christians living anywhere in the world over the course of the last 2,000 years. As I've said before, we've been somewhat insulated from that during the last 200 years here in America because of our nation's emphasis on religious freedom. But that religious freedom is being attacked and eroded every single day. And while it is sad to see our nation's, nation giving up the freedoms that were fought and won. When we take a step back, it should not be surprising to us that Christians are the particular target of the world's cancel culture. Now, to be clear, cancel culture is not just about the world and Christians or the world and the church. We, we know that unbelievers are canceling other unbelievers in our world today. Right, this is happening across the political spectrum, from the right to the left and back again, right? It's, it's happening in Hollywood, right, with some actors canceling other actors who like to slap people and things like that, right? We, all of this is happening. But there's no doubt that Christians in particular, especially evangelical Christians with conservative viewpoints on morality, are in the crosshairs of cancel culture's rage, and that should not surprise us because Jesus told us that it would happen. In John 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. 
But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Now we need to keep what we're seeing so far in our country in proportion. So far we're seeing things like cake makers being sued and losing their business for refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. We're seeing people's Twitter accounts canceled over posts that are deemed offensive. We're seeing people lose their jobs for taking a stand on a moral issue that goes against the company's policies. These are serious things, but they are not Christians being burned at the stake things. They are not yet Paul being beheaded kinds of things. But for us who live in a country where throughout most of our nation's history, we as believers have had the religious freedom to practice our faith without fear of reprisal, it can be shocking for us when we begin to see these things happening. It can be unsettling, and it can leave us wondering why all this animosity seemingly all this sudden. Where did this hatred come from for what have been traditional views? Well, that's probably a bigger question than we have time to go into depth about this morning. But we know that Scripture tells us one of the reasons is that when we speak the truth and when we shine the light, in John chapter 3 it says those who are living in darkness will not like it. That those who are in darkness hate the light, lest their evil deeds should be exposed. We know that in particular in our nation right now, there is a sexual revolution that is happening. And the powers that be are pushing that revolution further and further and faster and faster And in their view, no disagreement can be allowed or tolerated. And in that battle, the arrows are beginning to be aimed more and more at conservative Christians because we are some of the only holdouts left. We are some of the only people left who are standing in the way of an anything-goes sexual ethic. But of course, with all that said, we know that one of the main reasons we as believers are in the crosshairs of the cancel culture is because there is a spiritual battle that has been going on since the Garden of Eden. There is no group of people that Satan would rather have silenced and shamed and shut out of the public discourse than born-again Christians whose eyes have been opened to the truth, who have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their hearts. If Satan can make the church be quiet then he knows the gospel cannot be heard by those who desperately need to hear it. But again, Christians, we should not be surprised. We should expect to be canceled living in the same world that canceled Christ. Here's a second principle about living in a cancel culture. We as believers cannot waffle on what good and evil are. Look with me at verse 9, the first verse that we read. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be sincere. It says to not love like a hypocrite, not love like an actor that's just pretending to love, but to actually really 
love. And what's interesting is in the next couple phrases, it tells us what that means, what that looks like. It looks like abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. There is a connection between all the ideas in verse 9. First off, it means that we're not loving people around us well if we are not hating what is evil and loving what is good in our own lives. If we are walking in evil ways instead of in good ways, it has an impact on the people around us that we say we love. But also it means in their lives too. In the lives of the people that we truly, sincerely love, we're going to hate what is evil and we're going to love what is good. We are going to believe that what God has called good is good for them. And that what God has told us is evil in his word is evil for them and not good for them, no matter what the world around us may say. So here is the deal. If we're waffling on what good and evil are, especially when it shows up in the lives of our family members and our friends, if we're hedging about what is right and what is wrong, if we're keeping quiet about it, if we never talk about it, then we're not actually loving people well, according to this verse. We're not loving them sincerely. Now, admittedly, there is a lot of pressure in our world to change our views on certain topics. You know, everything that you see on the news, right, and everything that you see online makes you feel like everybody in the world believes X, and you are a total wacko nutcase job if you believe Y. And and we see that, and that, that has an effect on us. There's a strong pull in all of our hearts to want to be liked, to want to be respected, and so it's easy to start to waffle. It's easy to start to change our views, to let our views evolve or devolve. Or at least to downplay the views that we know might get us into trouble. And if you keep your head down, right? If you keep your head down, you probably can avoid the worst of it. I've, I've used this illustration before about the game whack-a-mole, right? It's only the moles that stick their heads out of the crown that get whacked. Take John the Baptist as an example. John the Baptist did not get arrested and eventually beheaded because he liked to eat locusts. That was weird. He didn't get killed for it. He didn't get arrested and beheaded because he baptized people. People thought that was a novelty. They came from all around to see it. He got arrested and he got beheaded because he spoke out about sexual sin. Because he called out King Herod for taking his brother's wife as his own. That's what got him arrested. That's what got him beheaded. And so some people might say, well, John, if you just could have piped down, if you just could have kept baptizing people and not said anything about that, maybe you wouldn't have died. Maybe it would have been okay. But if he had done that, he would not have been a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And church, we will not be faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in our generation if we're ashamed of his word. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. So first, it's important that we know what Jesus' word is, that we know what Jesus says, 
about these controversial issues, many of which we're going to talk about in this series, and then that we never let go of those biblical convictions. We cannot be ashamed of his word. Listen, I like waffles as much as anybody else, but we cannot waffle on what is right and what is wrong. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Here's a third principle which is so important. If we're going to live well in this cancel culture, we are to love all people, including those with whom we strongly disagree. If you look down at the first phrase of verse 16, it says, Be of the same mind towards one another. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always going to agree with everybody else, right? That's impossible. I mean, I don't even always agree with myself, right? There's some days I think one thing, and the next thing, I'm ar- next day I'm arguing with myself about what I thought the day before, right? And we all do that. There's nobody in your life that you agree with about every single topic every day. So disagreements are going to happen, but it means that we love each other. It means, as one person put it, that we arrive at God's way of thinking about that other person despite our disagreement. It's really what the true definition of the word tolerance is. Now, we've talked about this before, but, you know, tolerance is held up in our society as the highest virtue in our society. But the definition of tolerance has been drastically changed. Tolerance has now been redefined to mean that you cannot disagree with the pervading viewpoint of our culture, and if you do, you are a, quote, intolerant person who needs to be silenced. That's where it's gone now. But if you think about it, silencing people who disagree is the exact opposite of the original definition of the word tolerance. Tolerance means that we tolerate people who have other views than what we hold. It means that we still respect them and we still love them despite our differences. And that's what the word of God is calling us to do. And for believers, we are enabled supernaturally to do that in a way that the world is not. Because the love of Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts. Look at verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another. With brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. To be kindly affectionate means to love each other with a brotherly, family kind of love. Now let me ask you, is that what you see happening when you read people's posts on Facebook? Is that what you see happening when you read the comment section of whatever news site you get your news from? Do you see a lot of people loving each other with brotherly love on there? Do you see a lot of people showing honor to the other person, trying to outdo each other by showing honor to the other one? No, you do not. The truth is, as I said, our world has simply forgotten how to disagree charitably. Our world has decided that if two people disagree about something, they should be mortal enemies and never talk to each other again. If one of your friends happened to vote for the other candidate in the last election, they can never be your friend again. They are out of the circle of trust. That that is what our world is saying to us. You need to unfollow them. You need to unfriend them. 
And another thing that is happening, and we'll talk more about this next week, is that college students are going off to classes. They are taking classes that their parents are paying for, and then they are being indoctrinated with radical and unbiblical ideology, and then they are beginning to view their own parents as wackos. And they are virtually canceling their own parents and distancing themselves from them. But what's scary to me is not that I see this happening in the world. What is scary to me is when I begin to see this happening in the house of God. When I begin to see Christians canceling other Christians over relatively minor disagreements. Friends, that is patently unbiblical and unchristian. We're commanded by God to be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. We are not told to just love people with whom we agree about everything. If that's the case, our circle of love would be very small indeed. In the church, we do not have to agree on everything. We have to agree on the main thing. We have to agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have to agree that he's the son of God. We have to agree that he came, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, that salvation comes only by faith in him and him alone. We have to agree on that. We don't have to agree on every single other thing. And my conviction is that in the church, we need to be demonstrating with the love that God has put in our hearts, we need to be demonstrating how to disagree charitably to a world that has forgotten how. The next principle is a key part of that. Number four, we are to be firm in our convictions and humble in our opinions. Look with me at the second part of verse 16. Do not set your mind on high things. Now, that does not mean, as some have taught over the years, that Christians should not study philosophy or higher math or things like that. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that we are not to be haughty. We are not to be arrogant. The next phrase brings that out. But associate with the humble And then this last phrase, do not be wise in your own opinion. Wow. How seldomly is that verse practiced today? Now, again, we're not talking here about core convictions about biblical truth. I'm not saying that when you're speaking about a core tenet of the gospel that you need to do as some people do and preface everything you say with, well, I feel this, or, you know, well, my view is this, or, you know, I like to think this. No, that's not what we have to do. When we're speaking about truth that God has revealed to us about his son, Jesus Christ, we can just say that. We can just say that firmly and lovingly. But sometimes people, including some Christians, act like they are the wisest person in the room on virtually every topic. I've seen believers who are wise in their own opinion, who are ready to go to war about anything and everything under the sun. And it is not a good look. The last couple of years, I've seen Christians online who are literally ready to go to war over vaccines and over masks and over, I don't know, Dr. Fauci. 
And you, you might have strong views on those things, and you might have researched your views on those things, and it's okay to discuss our opinions about those things. But church, let's not defend those things like we're defending the deity of Jesus Christ. Those things don't require anywhere near the same degree of tenacity. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And here's my fear, and here's why I'm raising this. Some believers are losing their witness on social media. And they are losing their witness with their unsaved friends because of secondary and tertiary matters. There are some believers who have been so unloving and so unkind to their unsaved friends about COVID and about politics and other things that it's now going to be very difficult for them to share with those same friends about Jesus Christ. And how tragic is that? Christian, Jesus did not tell us in the Great Commission to go into all nations and make Republicans. He didn't tell us to go into all nations and make Democrats either. He didn't tell us to go into all nations and make maskers or make unmaskers. He said, go into all nations and make disciples. And if we want to live well in this cancel culture and be a winsome witness of the good news of Jesus Christ, we cannot confuse our opinions with our biblical convictions about the things that matter most of all. Here's principle number five. And this comes straight from the language of this passage in Romans. We are to seek peace with others as much as depends on us. Look with me at verse 18 says exactly that. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You know, is there any verse in this passage that has more of the exact opposite of the spirit of cancel culture than this? Right? Cancel culture says, as far as depends on you, make sure that everybody agrees with your viewpoint. Right? Cancel culture says, as far as depends on you, you need to silence the opposition. Cancel culture says, as far as depends on you, you need to cancel, cancel, cancel until they shut up, until they stop getting in your way. Cancel culture says, as far as depends on you, you need to take up your pitchfork and you need to go to war over every single little thing. But God tells us as his followers, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, of course, that isn't always possible, right? Because peace in a relationship with someone else is a two-way street. That's why it says, as far as depends on you. But this verse teaches us that if there is not peace today between me and someone else, it better not be because of me. We all need to pursue peace in our relationships. We need to make sure that we're not treating someone else like an enemy, even if they are treating me like an enemy. God is calling me to love them and to bless them. And maybe God is putting a name on your heart right now, someone that you need to go to this week. And as far as depends on you, you need to seek peace in that relationship. Maybe there's something you need to forgive. Maybe there's something you need to ask forgiveness for. So that again, at the end of the day, no matter what they decide to do, as far as depends on you, 
you're at peace. You know, cancel culture would wither away and die if we just all obeyed this one verse. Of course, we know that the world will not, that those who do not know God will live in ungodly ways and more and more as the end draws near. And we are not ultimately responsible for how they live. We are responsible for how we respond. And that leads me to principle number six. When we are canceled, we are not to cancel back. This passage could not be more clear about that. When people do wrong, sinful things to us in this world, and they will, we as God's children are not to try to get even. That is not our place. That is not our job. Look at verse 17. It says, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, as we apply these verses to cancel culture, I don't think these verses prohibit Christians who, because of their convictions, decide that they are not going to buy products or services from a company that is pushing ungodly things and using their profits to push those ungodly things. It is well within a Christian's right to say, God has given these funds to me, and in my conscience, I don't feel right about spending my money at store A when I know that they're going to go out and support X, Y, and Z. And so I'm going to spend my money elsewhere. That, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure that there are some Christians who probably reached that point this past week with the Walt Disney Company. Perhaps not even so much because of their opposition to the parental rights bill, but because of the videos that came out where leading executives of the company with their own mouths were saying that their intention and goal is to sexualize our children and to introduce as many LGBTQ plus characters in their programming as they possibly can. Now, now hear me. I'm not saying today that every Christian has to boycott Disney. I, I'm just saying that boycotting a company or refusing to give money to a company is not what I mean when I say don't cancel back. Well, I don't think these verses prohibit that either. What I'm speaking about is in our interpersonal relationships with other people. That when people lash out against us because of our views, we are told here in God's word to not retaliate. And I know someone might say, well, pastor, you don't understand. This person really hurt me. And what this person did, what this company did, it cost me my income. It cost me my livelihood. It's hurting my family. And listen, I know it was wrong. That's what evil is. Evil is wrong. But God says, don't repay evil for evil. Evil things will happen to us, but we as God's children are not to do evil things back. It really is that simple. You say, well, where is the justice then? Well, the justice lies with God. He says, vengeance is mine. And one day he will set all things right. But in the meantime, he tells us we are to do the very opposite of trying to get even. Jesus said we are to love our enemies. In the language of this passage, we are to feed them. We are to give them a drink. We are to bless them. And we are to pray for them. That through the love that we show to them in the face of their hatred, God might bring their heart to repentance. 
That is, after all, what we want for the lost, isn't it, church? Not that they be canceled, but that they be saved. This is why, church, listen to this. We don't have a gospel of cancellation. We have a gospel of reconciliation. The good news that we have to share is good news about a God who came to reconcile us. And so as a church, as the people of God, we don't need to be going around trying to get even with everybody. We don't need to be going around trying to cancel back. We need to be praying for those that God came to redeem and telling them that God loves them and sent his son to die for them. We've seen six principles already of how we are to live in a cancel culture. The seventh and last principle is the most important of all. Christian, no matter what happens to us now, no matter what happens to us in the future, we must rejoice in hope because our eternal salvation can never be canceled. I know that it can be scary sometimes when we think about where all of this is heading. Persecution against Christians is ramping up. There is no doubt about that. And if this cancel culture continues, if the animosity against biblical truth continues to escalate, it's easy to wonder what it's going to look like in the future to get canceled. Right now, it looks like losing your YouTube channel, possibly losing your job, or having a friend or family member distance themselves from us. But in the future, could it become Christian schools and parachurch ministries and even churches becoming the target? Losing, perhaps, their tax-exempt status for holding questionable views. That day probably is coming. Could it mean that pastors who speak out on the things that I'm going to speak out on in the rest of this series could get threatened or fined or at some point even arrested? Sure, that day can come. Of course, we know we have brothers and sisters in Christ in the world right now who are already today facing far worse than that. Many have been killed for the cause of Christ and are being killed for the cause of Christ. And we should not think that we will forever be insulated from that here in America. But church, listen, despite all of that, Paul wrote to these Christians in Rome in verse 12 these words, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. We need to pray. We need to take it all to the Lord. We need to persevere, even in the midst of tribulation, and we need to rejoice in hope. Why do we have hope? How can we have hope in the midst of this crazy world? Because we know that this world is not all that there is. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know who did that? Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrated last weekend. Through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, he was not overcome by evil, but he overcame evil by good. And evil has been forever defeated at the cross. And that is why, church, like we said last week, we can always have a Sunday hope. We can always have a living hope. Sure, people may cancel us down here. What's the worst that they can do? Kill us? What then? We go to be with the Lord. Live for Christ. Dying is gain. 
We have an eternal salvation that can never be canceled. Jesus said in John 10, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It's why Paul was able to say at the very end of his life, when he was facing execution, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're here today and you don't have that same assurance that Paul had, that you'll be in heaven when you die, listen, friend, God loves you. And he sent his son to save you, to die for you. And here's what it says in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know another way of saying that? Another way of saying that verse is this right here. Jesus didn't come to cancel you. He came to claim you as his own. He didn't come to cancel you. He didn't come to condemn you. He knows about all the wrong things that you and I have ever said or done or thought. He knows about all of that. And yet amazingly, he loves us anyway. And he died for all of that sin on the cross so that we could be forgiven. But each of us individually has to open up our heart, has to take a step of faith, has to receive Jesus Christ into our heart to wash us and forgive us of all of our sin. I want to invite you to stand with me, church. And I want to invite you right now, if you're here and, and you know you need to take that step to receive Jesus, who didn't come to cancel you, came to save you. And you want to receive him into your heart and receive his forgiveness. You come right now. Share that with me or one of the other pastors that'll be here at the front in just a moment. Maybe sometime in the last week, you've given your heart and life to Christ. Maybe you did it last weekend at one of our Easter services. And you know you need to come and be baptized. You come right now and say, I've trusted in Jesus this week. I want to be baptized today. And you share that with us right now. Whatever God's saying to you, you come as we sing, as we worship.